Well, hello and uh, welcome again to the remote worship service here for Stanton Evangelical Free Church. Uh, those of you who are, of course, tuning in and uh, uh, taking in uh, God's Word through uh, the use of uh, uh, our video, um, just want you to uh, do me a favor. So all of you that are watching this that are part of Stanton Free Church, if you do me a favor and email me or call the office and let us know that you have been uh, watching this, this sermon on video, that this is your normal way of uh, 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 hearing uh, the sermon each week. And if you want the uh, video to continue to be posted, uh, please uh, let us know that. Uh, email me at the church office or call the church office and uh, let us know or send me a text um, if you have my cell phone number and uh, let us know about that. Next week, um, starting next week, we'll, 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 we'll begin to record these messages and post them after the morning worship service. Uh, and so we're just trying to, trying to decide if it's better to do it by audio or uh, video like we are doing it now. So please let us know if you would prefer it to be uh, a video uh, as we've been doing. All right, we're going to be turning to uh, Luke chapter 9, so the Gospel of Luke chapter 9, and uh, our reading today is uh, verses 18 through 27, so Luke 9, verses 18 through 27, and here is the reading from God's Word. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do you, the crowd, say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. And let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you now, hearing your word. We ask you for your help, Father, that you would give us your spirit, that your spirit would work in our hearts, helping us to know you, helping us to, to see Jesus revealed in these words on these pages, and Father, that you would help us to believe. Uh, to have faith that Jesus truly is who he says he is, 
And Lord, that you would help us to follow him in the way that he is commanding us to follow him here. We cannot do it but by your grace and by your spirit. And as in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Well, our passage begins, verse 18, with Jesus praying alone. This brief moment in the passage, with all that Jesus says after it, can easily be overlooked. But the other day as I was uh, reading over this passage and, and meditating on it, I was struck by this Jesus was praying alone. His disciples were with him, it says, and yet he was praying alone. He was about to ask them about who they said he was. But before that, he was praying. He was about to reveal to them that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the leaders of his people and be crucified, and so he was praying alone. He knew all of that immense suffering was coming for him, and so he was praying alone. Jesus, the Son of God, was praying alone. And for the Lord Jesus here, there were things that were on the horizon that he knew would require much strength and conviction and perseverance to endure. He knew he needed help. And so we come upon him here in our text, praying alone. His disciples were with him, and he was about to lead them into a deeper understanding of the gospel. He was about to warn them that if they would continue to be associated with him, that it would be costly. It would be costly for them and their families. And I'm sure he felt a heavy responsibility for each of them. And so he is here praying alone. Friends, this has been a hard year for us. A hard year for our community and for our nation. This week, the Major League Baseball season finally started, but... Watching it, it is so obvious that it isn't what it ought to be. It doesn't seem like a real game when there isn't anyone in the stands watching the game and some of the players are even wearing masks. And rather than being a healthy diversion from all of these troubles, watching it is a constant reminder of them. I know that you are very tired of hearing about the coronavirus but friends, it is still here. It is still a reality. And as we look toward the next few months and into the next year, we don't see much hope of things changing for the better. On top of that, it's been a very dry year thus far. Crop prices are not looking too promising, and we don't know just how this next school year is going to, to look for us. So it is a humbling time for our nation and for us. And we open up our Bibles on a Sunday morning, and what do we see Jesus doing? We find him praying alone. And that, to me, is so encouraging, that Jesus was praying here. Luke doesn't tell us just what he was praying about, but it would seem, with what he begins to teach his disciples here, that the possibility of him praying for them is quite likely. 
He is praying for these men who will take up their crosses in order to follow him. And God's word tells us in Romans 8, 34, that Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for us. So friends, the first lesson of this passage is that Jesus Christ is your Lord and he is your Savior and he is praying for you through these times. And if praying alone or with others has not been a regular practice for you in these difficult times, well, it would be wise for you to follow the Lord's example here and make it a regular discipline for you. Pray. Ask your Heavenly Father for the help and for the hope that you are needing. If you watch or hear something on the news that, that troubles you or, or, or causes anxiety to rise up in your chest, bring whatever that trouble is to God in prayer at that instant. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Jesus believed he needed to pray. Let us not forget that we have the same incredible opportunity to speak to God the Father as he did and because of what he did for us. But this isn't a text that's focused on prayer. It is rather focused, once again, on who Jesus is and what it means to be one of his people. These have been the two main themes in this section of the Gospel of Luke that we've been in, so that is what we clearly see here once again. Our main theme for verses 18 through 27 of Luke chapter 9 is we are to consider the sober reality of what it means to be the Christ and the high cost of following him. First, as we look at verses 18 through 22, we're going to focus on the high cost of being the Christ. The high cost of being the Christ. It seems that what, what Luke is trying to help his readers to do here is the very thing that Jesus was trying to do in this moment with his disciples, and that is to help us to consider just who Jesus is. In Luke's gospel, up until this point, we have seen the question, who is this? in regards to Jesus, six times. Those in his hometown of Nazareth, when Jesus taught in their synagogue, said, who is this? Who claims um, uh, all these great things about himself. And then the scribes and the Pharisees, when Jesus claimed to forgive sins, said, who is this who claims he can forgive sins? And then John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus to ask him who he was. And then his disciples, after they witnessed him calm the storm while at sea, said, who is this that can, that, that can command the winds and the sea and they obey him? And then finally, here in chapter 9, verse 9, we see Herod asking the big question. After hearing about Jesus from those members of his court, and he says, who is this? So it seemed then, from what Luke was doing here, that this is a question he wants us to consider. It's a question he wants you to consider. And not just Luke, but it would seem that Jesus wants anyone who seeks to learn about him, which of course is what you are all doing here this morning, he wants you to consider this question, who is this? 
Who do you personally say that he is? Who do you personally know him to be? We know that the crowds in, in, in our day have their own opinions about who Jesus is. Just like in the first century here, we know that many would say that Jesus was a good moral teacher, but nothing more. Others would say that Jesus was a fine example of a good man who tried to help and serve others, but tragically was, was killed by those who were in power at the time. Others would say that he was someone whom we can safely ignore, someone of no consequence, that he, was no, he has no bearing on life today or the life to come, and anyone who would think he is more than that is misguided at best and deranged at worst. So who do you personally say and believe that Jesus is? That is the question here. Well, Peter spoke for the apostles, as he often did, and gave the answer, the Christ of God. Notice he didn't say, I believe you are the Christ of God, nor, nor did he say, well, I think you are the Christ. Rather, Peter states clearly and boldly the Christ of God, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the King in the line of David whom God had promised would come and who would rule an everlasting kingdom. That is who Peter declares that Jesus is. And Jesus doesn't correct him, for that is who he is. But what does it really mean to be the Christ? That is what Jesus begins to explain next, for he warns them not to tell anyone yet. And we might think, well, that's kind of a strange command. I mean, doesn't Jesus want people to, to know he is the Christ? Wouldn't that be good for them to, to, to know that he is the Christ so they could follow him? so that they could be saved and that they could come into his kingdom? Well, yes, of course that would be good, and uh, uh, that, that would be good. And, and, and Jesus did want people to know that he was the Christ, just like he wanted the disciples here to know who he really was. But the problem was that the disciples didn't clearly understand what it meant for Jesus to be the Christ yet. And there was great potential for the crowds of people to misunderstand just what Jesus' mission really was. They might seek to try to have a, a confrontation with the Romans in order to make Jesus king, but that was, was not what Jesus had come to do, at least not yet. In verse 22, Jesus begins to explain what it meant to be the Christ here, and, and it actually meant something far different than what the disciples and most of the Jewish nation was expecting. Look at verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Again, Jesus refers to himself here as the Son of Man, and that is from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. He's saying the one there who would be presented before God and would be given an everlasting kingdom and would rule over the world, that that is who he is. That is the expected anointed Davidic king. That is the Messiah. But Jesus says here that before he will be given the kingdom, he must first suffer many things. It says he must 
Supper. It must happen, for that is what had been written. That was what God's word had said. One primary place he was referring to in the Hebrew Scriptures would be Isaiah 53, where it says in verses 10 and 11 there, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. You see, there was an incredible love that stood behind Jesus' statement that the Son of Man must suffer many things. It was necessary because there was no other way for God to restore his sinful, wayward people to himself. These things must happen because as John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Gave his only son to be crucified. Gave his only son to die for sinners. To suffer God's wrath in their place. So that whoever believes in him should not perish, but be fully restored to God and have eternal life. These things must happen because this was the way for God's people like you and me to be saved from God's judgment for our sin. This is what it meant for Jesus to be the Christ. He must suffer first, and then he will be glorified. Then he will be raised on the, on the third day. Then he will be given the kingdom. The cross must come before the crown. And secondly, in verses 23 through 25, we see the high cost of following Christ. The high cost of following Christ. Look back at your Bibles, verses 23 through 25. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? On Tuesday in Colorado, uh, the youth group students and I went to, uh, we went to whitewater rafting, and we loaded up in a bus in Estes Park, and we're driven about an hour and a half down the mountain uh, to the Cache Lapooter River, where we were then equipped with our safety gear for the river, our life jackets, and our, our helmets. And once we had those fitted on us, one of the river guides uh, named Sam uh, began to give us the safety talk. And he made sure to warn us about all the things that could go wrong on the river, mentioning a few different ways we could die on the river, and thus why it was so important for us to be sure to listen to our guides and do exactly as they said while we were in the rafts. Before we ever got in, got in the boats, we were warned of the potential high cost of enjoying whitewater rafting. And Jesus is doing a similar thing here in our passage. He has just let the disciples know of what it really means to be the Christ, the high cost of suffering that he must endure as the Christ. Now he shares what the high cost will be to follow the Christ. It will mean denying oneself. It will mean taking up one's cross daily. It's not just a high cost for those who would be apostles 
or missionaries or pastors or, or full-time Christian workers. Verse 23 says Jesus is saying this to all. If anyone, he says, would come after me, anyone, if you want to have a relationship with Jesus, if you're going to commit your life to Jesus, if you're going to follow Jesus in faith, then this is what it will mean for you. This is a description of what it means to be a Christian. It is not just dressing up nice and going to church on Sundays. It is laying down your life and submitting yourself fully to the Lord's word. Just like our our rafting guides, making sure to listen to him in order to do whatever he says. The life of a Christian or a follower of Jesus Christ, as he describes it here for us, is a life of setting aside our own selves for the good of others and for the glory of Christ. That is, denying personal control of one's life. In order to have Jesus as our master, we must first remove ourselves from that position. You see, the primary obstacle that keeps us from obeying Jesus is our own desire for comfort and for control. We will obey Jesus just so long as it doesn't interfere with what we really want to do. Just think of, all, of how often you are in a situation and your biblically informed conscience is telling you what you know Jesus has commanded you to do, but your sinful flesh rises up and tries to convince you that you would be much better off doing what you would rather do anyway. What Jesus calls you to do here is to deny yourself. Take up your cross. And when he says that, he is calling you to crucify the old self-centered way of living and live in a Christ-centered way, empowered by the Spirit. As it said in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now the cross... In the first century, it says, take up your cross. The cross in the first century when Jesus taught this was not a decoration that Christians would wear around their necks or hang on their walls. It was a disgusting object of torture that would bring terror to those who ever saw one in use. Think of a, of a noose or an electric chair. The Romans would would hang traitors and rebels on crosses as a sign to those that they ruled over that this is what happens to anyone who rebels against the empire. Those condemned to be killed on a cross would be forced to carry the crossbeam on their backs out of the city to where they would be hung. It was a public spectacle. And in the same way, following Jesus is a daily public display. Christians step forward before their churches and others to give testimony of their allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, and then they are baptized as a public demonstration of their faith. And then Christians spend their lives following Jesus day by day, that is, following the example and teachings of Jesus day by day, doing what he says, 
which then sets them apart from the world which is in rebellion against God. And in verse 24, as, it, as, as this verse makes clear, this is the way of faith for the Christian. This isn't something that is added to faith. It is, it is the way of faith. For if you continue to live a self-centered life, which is focused on enjoying all this present world has to offer you, you will then not find eternal life. For whoever would save his life, it says, will end up losing it in the end. They will not be granted eternal life with God, but, but whoever gives up his self-centered life of rebellion against God for the sake of Christ and the gospel, they will end up saving it. That is, they will find everlasting life and communion with God in the eternal kingdom. Now, for me, for me personally, seeing my friend Justin do this just before I entered my senior year of high school is what the Holy Spirit used to show me what it really meant to follow Christ and also to show me that I was not a Christian at that time. He willingly, my, my friend, he willingly gave up his dream of playing baseball in college to serve Christ and the poor in North Omaha right after he graduated from high school. And when I asked him why he would do that, he simply told me he knew that it was what the Lord Jesus wanted him to do. And he said, my life belongs to, to him. And I'm happy to go wherever he wants me and do whatever he tells me to do. He denied himself. He took up his cross daily and followed Jesus. And for me, seeing him do that helped me to repent of my unwillingness to deny myself and my refusal to take up my cross and follow Jesus. So friends, where are you this morning? Are you really following Jesus? How much does your Christian life resemble the way Jesus describes it here? Is Christ really the master of your life? Or have you not yet removed yourself from that position? Remember, this is not just a one-time decision that you made years ago. It is a daily thing. It's an ongoing thing, a daily decision to follow Christ as our Lord, obey his word, and deny our own self-centered desires. Depend upon the Lord in prayer to give you his spirit, to help you deny yourself and follow him. It is a high cost. There will be a high cost, but you will end up saving your life in the end. And then verses 26 and 27, we see there will be an even higher cost for distancing ourselves away from Christ. Look at those verses. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him Will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels? But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now in our contemporary secular culture, it is definitely not cool to take Christ or his words seriously. Especially what his words say in regards to sexual morality. In the last 20 years, we have 
seen denominations follow the world and the spirit of the age in drastically changing their church's teaching on sexual morality. Many churches and denominations now welcome and affirm homosexual practice as good, as moral, and normative. And not just homosexuality, but couples who are church members and confess to be Christians, but who are not married to one another yet, and yet live together and engage in a sexual relationship outside of the covenant of marriage. That is perfectly acceptable practice in these churches that claim to be following Christ here in the West. That behavior is is normal and expected. And certain churches and denominations have now even ordained pastors and bishops who are openly homosexual and transgender. So what is clear from this passage, as well as many others, friends, is that when churches, denominations, and individual Christians make such compromises with the culture, that is, with the world, they are doing the very thing that Jesus here condemns. They are showing that they are ashamed of Christ and his words. They would much rather be accepted by the world, by our our, our Hollywood pleasure-focused culture, than to please the Lord Jesus Christ. They fear man rather than God. To them, people are big, and Jesus is rather small. And Jesus warns us here, if we would go their way, if we would be ashamed of him and his word, and if we would make similar compromises, in the end, the Son of Man, who is the ultimate judge of all the world, will be ashamed of us when he comes in his glory. And friends, as it says, he will come in his glory. He won't allow this rebellion to go on forever. He is patient. Each day he gives us, he is providing another opportunity for repentance for our country, repentance for those wayward churches and pastors, and for you, if you know yourself to be much more in line with the way of the world than in line with what Jesus says here in his word. Today is another opportunity that he has given you to repent and turn from your own way of living and submit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you humble yourself and repent, he will save you. He will give you a new heart to love and follow him. And he will help you as you turn away from this world and the coming destruction and judgment that is upon this world and align yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm not exactly sure what verse 27 is referring to. Jesus could be referring here to the transfiguration when Peter, James, and John will witness the glory of Jesus revealed on the mountain, which is in the passage immediately after this, or he could be referring to his resurrection from the dead or or the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. But the main point here is, again, in verse 27, that his kingdom is coming. It will come. He must suffer. He must be killed. And on the third day be raised. And his kingdom will come when he comes in his glory. And the glory of the Father and of the holy angels.
on that day. You don't want to be in the number of those who were ashamed of Jesus and his words and instead align themselves with this rebellious world and their ways of living. On that day, you don't want to be on the wrong side of judgment. You don't want to be on the wrong side of Christ. My family and I have been watching together uh, recently the, the, the Disney animated series Star Wars Rebels. We are a Star Wars family. And in the last episode of the first season, there is the showdown between uh, the evil Grand Inquisitor and these two Jedi characters, Kanan and Ezra. And it's a great lightsaber fight for those of you who appreciate such things. But at the end, when the, when the Inquisitor has been defeated and he's hanging from this ledge above this burning hot energy core, he looks up and he tells Kanan some things are worse than death. And then he lets go and falls to his death. He believed it was much better to die in that way than to face the wrath of Darth Vader. And friends, the wages of sin is death. We are going to have to face death because we are sinners. But there is something far worse than death, and that is living your life in rejection of Christ and his word, being ashamed of him because of your fear of man. For if you die still in your rebellion against him, you will then face his wrath in judgment. But there is another way. Humble yourself. Look to the great love of God and the unbelievable grace that he is offering you of forgiveness and eternal life by rejecting this world and dying to yourself and following him. We are not saved by taking up our cross. Rather, we are saved because Jesus took up his cross for us. And as the the, the great old hymn says, I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come to the end of uh, this message this morning and are thinking about considering these words from Luke chapter 9, I pray, Lord, that you would continue to help us to be shaped and formed by these words in the midst of a culture, a world that surrounds us, which is in rebellion to Christ and these words. So give us your your spirit. Help us, Father, to obey. Help us to believe and help us to follow. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.